drugs, consciousness manipulation, and cheating your way to a better you. Ask me anything for episode EF8. I'm Scott Ely. Welcome to episode EF28 of the Evolve Faster podcast. This is an Ask Me Anything relating back to the episode EF8, which was season one, episode six of the Evolve Faster podcast, titled, Without a Compass, All Who Sail the Seas of Identity Are Not Lost. Just to give you a quick reminder of what this episode was about, I'll read the, the content section of the description on the website. What defines our identity? John Locke thought it was our consciousness and the daily actions that shape who we are. Eric and Joan Erickson created an entire step-by-step description of the phases in each individual goes through. Finally, recent neuroscientific research manages to make a hard connection between various emotions we experience in our brain. Is there anything we can actually do to navigate the rough emotional waters of life more effectively? The character of this episode was Lisa, uh, if that helps you remember. If you have not listened to this episode yet, uh, I'd suggest you do. Otherwise, listening to this may leave you with some spoilers and ruined surprises. But what we're going to try to jump into here are the following questions. Are there any identity-changing drugs on the market or planned? Could a drug really change your identity? The metaphor seems to imply that if you have a compass, a plan for your life, then you can navigate the rough emotional waters. Is this what it's implying? Who originally posed the Theseus ship thought experiment? Hasn't the Theseus paradox been solved? How does the insanity defense work in the context of Locke's theory? The characters talk about research that says the more intelligent a being is, the more problems it has. Does this imply that being intelligent is worse? If I'm swayed by my emotions like Lisa, how can I get more control? So we'll see if we can get through all those. Are there any identity-changing drugs planned? Well, I'd love to know how a drug specifically made to alter one's identity would work. It's one thing to plant the idea in a work of fiction to create a narrative we can discuss, but a complete other thing to actually make that happen. If nothing else, it would make one hell of a pharmaceutical startup. Um, Then again, many things that have been invented in fiction do become a reality. So who says the same couldn't happen here as well? Our individual identity is extremely complex, and there are obvious parts like what you think of yourself, what would others think of you, and then there's the whole iceberg of aspects that nobody sees below the surface, not even you. We might describe identity as your active soul if such a thing existed. Nobody knows where it's located, but it's there, and it constantly influences your decisions, actions, and everyday life. So what steps do you take to artificially control something so complex and abstract. I'd guess most people take none. But what would happen if such a drug did become a reality? The closest potential tool I'd say that we can think about is CRISPR, the genome editing tool. CRISPR has gotten tons of attention because of the theoretical possibility to customize unborn babies. Do you want your baby to have blue eyes? What about an unconventional urge for healthy food? To be clear, as far as I know, CRISPR is a remarkable breakthrough because it allows us to potentially cure genetic diseases and more. But it does have that other side. Let's say a CRISPR or mule-like drug comes becomes a reality and we can change anything we want about ourselves. You just make an appointment, check down what you want different, and that's it. 
knew you, knew everyone. Sound entirely far-fetched? Well, I wouldn't be so sure. I just read an article today saying that the first completely computer-generated genome has been built biologically. While you pick your jaw up off the floor and consider the implications of what this means, I'll continue on. Back to the mule drug scenario, or CRISPR new identity scenario, whichever comes first. Just imagine that. That would be one of the biggest thefts humanity has ever done to, on nature, to steal the power that until now was exclusively in nature's control. No biases, no subjectivity. But with the power landing in our hands, the entire game would change, as then we'd have more possibilities to make the world both greater and shittier. What do you think would happen? But actually, some drugs already do this to some extent, don't you think? Drugs like Prozac, for example, would, and you could certainly argue it, that the likes of opiates and heroin are changing identities for the worse. There's a hefty amount of research on how addictive drugs instantly and momentarily change your brain circuits. Cocaine can make you feel like you can take on the world, a confidence boost you couldn't get otherwise. Um, and DMT or LSD might make you feel like you're one with the universe. Though usually these states don't persist, although I do know some serious LSD users who are not quite the same after too many multi-dimensional journeys. So it's not like we don't have that. The, the difference is most of them are time limited. But who knows, one day we might have a drug that not only gives you a life's worth of courage, but also uh, what buttons in your brain you want to push. So if that happens, what then? A world where we're all equally perfect, all the same even-keeled? Or would artists go for temporary angst and suffering identities while they work to draw from the pain and then maybe take a different type of mule to bring them back to center when they're done working for the day? Would that be a good or a bad thing? I don't know. Could a drug really change your identity? So as discussed in the episode, we should distinguish personal identity and personality. So let's keep it simple. Imagine identity as your body and the personality as the clothes you choose to wear. In the same way, as your body's health is under the influence of both external and internal causes, so is your identity. So I don't know if you ever had a grandparent who, because of deteriorating health, was prescribed, let's say, some kind of medicine. Soon you notice that there's a slight but abrupt change in their mood, personality, and you didn't know is because of the drug or because of the sickness. We're not bashing pharmaceuticals, but just to make a point. So we can argue that any drug you take momentarily changes you in a certain way. From medicine, psychedelics, to an everyday cup of coffee, or just some foods, everything we take affects our brain. I read a book called Your Brain on Food, and it was a, a psychology professor named Gary Wink, and he discusses how there are three categories. Supplements we take in acute dosing that have an almost immediate effect on us, like coffee, sugar, heroin, psychoactive edibles like mushrooms and so on. Then we have food that takes a few days or a few weeks, like potatoes and rice and eggs. And finally, there are slow-acting nutrients, like antioxidant foods such as vegetables, fish, beer, and steroids, and so on. So we don't have to go to a secret lab to find something that alters who we are. We take stuff every day. The question of who are you 
becomes even more obvious because who actually is Scott, for example? Is the original Scott the guy who doesn't take his coffee in the morning and feels sluggish and grumpy all day? Or is the genuine Scott the guy who does drink coffee and is productive and able to process everything in the next 24 hours? So in the episode, we talked about the Theseus ship and it becomes obvious at one point, Lisa is deep in her thoughts thinking. Events that had her sailing off with a new ship via chemical compass, giving navigational instructions. So the slight difference in the episode is the episode talks about big changes we as individuals are aiming for, but it would seem minor changes happen every day just on the fact of what we eat and drink. Can we become a different person just by changing diet? Likely so. But for how long do we have to peel back the changeable aspects of ourselves until we discover the, the foundation, our identity, that is beneath each of us? So those are some deep, deep waters if you ask me, but also intriguing. The metaphor seems to be that if you, can, if you have a compass, a plan for your life, then you can navigate the rough emotional waters of life. Is that what the episode is implying? Terrence McKenna, my personal favorite psychonaut and public intellectual hippie, once said, if you don't have a plan, you become part of somebody else's plan. This indicates you should have a plan as having a plan is half the battle already won. But how many times did you make a plan and failed? Probably a lot. So this might have gotten you thinking that planning was a waste of time, but it's not the plan that's the problem, but us giving up. The compass as the metaphor for the episode is more like an emergency plan, a developed emotional intelligence that guides you to make the right decisions as much as possible. For so many situations, we can't know if it's the right decision or not. It's just impossible. So a finely tuned compass will help us make better guesses instead of just shooting blanks and guessing. Um, a sailor doesn't stare at his compass 24-7 on the trip. He only checks it out when he feels lost. So having a compass should be understood as just the first step and not a success by itself. So it does help us to navigate the rough waters of life, but you still need to steer it to sail, control the rudder, move the ship towards the designated point and so forth. So it's not about a plan, it's about practices. It's about not about goals, it's about habits. So before I even started publishing the first podcast episodes, I'd often discuss with Antonio my plans for the, the launch and the official start and how the things would feed out and he'd always feel that he wanted us to be ready to jump in the fire quicker. But I always wanted to plan even more in advance because I didn't want to find myself at a point where we had nowhere to go with the project. And you know, although I understood his point of view, over planning can be as bad as not making a plan at all. I felt we needed to be as prepared as possible. So more to the point, I wanted six to 12 months of work pre-done in advance so that we could navigate all the unplanned storms that would throw us off course. And they have, but luckily that level of overplanning prepared us. It's almost impossible to know what the right level of planning is for important parts of your life, but you know we can make a plan for our entire life and never do anything. But there lies the key. Have a good plan, take actions, don't be afraid to fail, and build an even better plan at each turn to make sure you either succeed or failing just to keep moving forward. Who originally posed the Theseus ship thought experiment? I'm not positive I'm remembering this correctly, and I meant to fact check this before I hit record, but I think it was originally Plutarch. I do know the idea has been discussed by the likes of Plato, 
Heraclitus and later Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. And Theseus was an ancient Greek hero. It's just one of those great mind-boggling thought experiments that provide an incredible amount of food for thought. Um, the best thought experiments get turned over and over throughout the centuries and rebaked into multiple different kitchens of, as new ideas and modes of thinking come to light. So in, in the episode, we, we tried to take a fresh look at it by combining it with some other conceptualizing about identity. Namely, the metaphor I chose was the compass, as discussed. So Lisa finds herself becoming someone else as pieces of her ship are falling off. So I'll read that section here. Lisa would describe herself as the pure embodiment of averageness, except in one way. She had a nasty temper. It was out of her control, and according to Lisa, the main culprit for her bad life. If her life was a ship at sea, and you could look at her lack of life progress on a map, the only thing consistent about the navigation would be the constant near capsizing from storms of her temper. The sea floor was littered with parts of her ship, broken off each time she wasn't able to control her rage. Sunken relationships here, capsized career there, and unhappy remnants floating about. It seemed like a drunken sailor was at the helm, bouncing from port to port, and from one near wreck site to the next, without a plan or a reason. If there was a compass on her ship, or even a rudder, it had clearly been smashed in one of her fits of uncontrolled emotion. In the mule, she saw what she felt was her only chance to upgrade the compass and, hopefully, have it auto-navigate to what was next. She'd tried everything else. So that was how we framed the, uh, our kind of usage and update of the, of the Theseus ship to combine it with these other challenges about identity. Hasn't the Theseus paradox been solved and or reposed as a more important paradox? So in a way, yes, I, though like most good philosophical thought experiments, there's no one answer just a layering of reason that adds better ways and new ideas to think about the original paradox at hand. So there have been many attempts to try to resolve the paradox spanning throughout history. One of the oldest solutions comes from Heraclitus. He stated, although identical in many ways, the two ships are still separated by time. So if you think about yourself, time is always the made ingredient of change from simple stone to human being. But the thing that changes is still the ship. So it is and it isn't the same no matter how much time you have. So this goes to another proposed solution to the paradox, that because the ship can be traced back to the original, it's still the same entity in different points in time. Same as you back when you were a five-year-old toddler to now. You can track your identity all the way back to your birth and possibly a bit further. <laughs> Thomas Hobbes introduced an additional puzzle by asking what if the original discarded parts were again used to build a new ship? Could we call that Theseus ship as well? So there are many usages of the paradox in fiction, including Asimov's work as well. Thought experiments like these are a fun way to think about things, and their main value comes in the fact through the contemplation that we can come to solutions we, we normally wouldn't without the, the framing of the thought experiment. So some people might find them meaningless, while some find great joy in trying to solve or at least hone one's reasoning on paradoxes like the Theseus ship. So I did, in this, I did the same in other episodes with other classic thought experiments, not always as overtly as I did here with this one, but the intro episode, EF2, 
Um, I made it my own with the reset buttons. Though it's not as deeply philosophical, um, a lot of people told me they got a lot of value out of the sim simplicity of that thought experiment and liked that it could be applied to both, both globally and also individually, not unlike how the Theseus ship can be applied. So in this episode, I used it as a tool to simply put in the spotlight how we all change and how you five years ago isn't the same person that you are today. If we can wrap our mind around that, we have a powerful piece of information we can use to improve ourselves and see that we can change. For the episode, this is the most important element, the realization of constant change, not really trying to solve this millennia's old paradox. How does the insanity defense work in the context of Locke's theory? So John Locke thought that personal identity depends on consciousness, not on substance, were his words. In other words, our identity depends on us being aware of things going on around us. You could say that you are the reincarnation of another person, but you could only be that person if you had their memories. Every unconscious action can't be the action of your identity or who you are, and that's where we can make the connection to the insanity of defense. Because how can you be trialed for something that you didn't do? Can you be blamed for what you did while you were asleep, even if it's killing someone? There's a crazy story that you may have heard about the guy who went to sleep one night, got up in the middle of the night. He was a known sleepwalker. I may get some of these details wrong. I didn't, I forgot to look up the details, but I just made a note to tell the story, but try to put a link to the article. And he got in his car, drove across town the entire time sleepwalking, went into his in-law's house, killed his in-law parents, I believe, his, the, his wife's mom and dad, drove back home and got back into bed. And because he was a known sleepwalker and because sleep is an acknowledged, legal, altered state of consciousness, he was absolved. It's, a, it's an amazing, crazy story, but it actually happened and it's not the only case. So sleep is legally acknowledged as is temporary insanity, as different states of consciousness. So it's hard to imagine the latter as most of us most of us haven't experienced insanity or temporary insanity, but we can imagine the former since we've all dreamed, we've all slept, and you, you know that you don't know what's going on while that's happening. Even lucid dreaming is a scientifically recognized altered state of consciousness. I'm guessing those are pretty uncomfortable get-togethers with the in-laws that remain in that family. So anyway, I hope that answers the question. The characters in this episode talk about research which says that the more intelligent a being is, the more choices it has, but that also comes with more problems. Does this imply that being intelligent is worse or just harder? I don't think there's an answer to this question. It's uh, there's no better or worse. Being a more intelligent species just comes with more conscious responsibility. Maybe picture it like this. So you, let's say you enter an ice cream shop that has only one flavor. You want ice cream and you don't care which one, so the choice is easy and it's made for you in, the, in any case. So, so you buy the ice cream and you enjoy it. The next day you enter a different ice cream shop that has hundreds of flavors. You don't have a particular one in mind again, you just want ice cream. You stand there unable to decide if you feel like having chocolate, strawberry, or that mysterious veggie flavor. Now imagine a squirrel walks into those two same scenarios. I know it's not likely that a squirrel would buy ice cream, but here's where you can revel in the joy of having a developed prefrontal cortex and an imagination. So will the squirrel care whether it's one 
or one of the hundreds of flavors? No, it's gonna take whatever it can get his little claws on because its judgment is solely based on what it needs, not what it wants. Though it would probably wisely sniff out the natural flavors and upturn its tiny nose at the fake non-real flavors like bubblegum. But who has a tougher job here? Even if it's something as crude as picking ice cream, the human, of course. But thanks to this possibility of being aware and being somewhat free to choose, humans do have much more options and possibilities to both succeed and fail. I guess in that sense, it's harder. And this isn't fascinating when you realize that the sole idea of what a human is isn't based on leisure or easiness, but hardship and difficulty. Granted, it's for all beings, but for humans, it's much more on a mental than a physical level. It's survival of the fittest, same as it was thousands of years ago. And finally, the thought, if it's worse to be intelligent the way humans are, I leave to each of us to decide, because really, is it better to be human or a squirrel? Hmm. If I'm swayed by my emotions like Lisa, how can I get some control? There's a quote from Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde that I like. He said, I don't want to be at the mercy of my emotions. I want to use them to enjoy them and dominate them. So if we follow this quote, the goal isn't to be removed from emotions, but to control. So we could say emotions are a result of how someone perceives an experience. Someone will feel fear if antagonized by another person, and someone might actually feel a rush of excitement. It's that primal reflex that's extremely hard to control. What's interesting here is our personal perception if the resulting emotion was right or wrong for a particular situation. You might run away and feel bad because you didn't have the bravery to face the other person. Another person might run away and feel happy because he or she didn't get hurt. So there are limitless possibilities in life how a single situation may occur. But let's say you're the person who feels bad for running away. What can you do? Can you decide and then act on the decision the next time you won't run away? face the fact you're a person who feels fear and so on. Possibilities are endless. So it goes back to the ice cream thought experiment in a way. You can always choose and sometimes it's hard, but as long as the choice is on the table, it's possible. But you'll have to live with your decision either way. And that's where you might need coping skills to deal with the story left behind in your head, like Lisa with the CBT or a stoic outlook. So if we presume there isn't an identity altering drug, what's the best step? Well, the drug also isn't the best step, and it's likely that there is no best step. So what we can do is stop bothering ourselves with what might have been the best choice, no matter if it's running away or getting into a fight. Because notice in the proposed situation how you're reacting emotionally to an emotional reaction you feel is wrong. You feel bad because you felt fear. It's a real emotional roller coaster because one emotion can easily jumpstart another emotion, like dominoes. Without mental training, which I'd argue should be taught in schools but isn't, most of us are unprepared to handle the flood of emotions, which is where we end up in the next episode with Elliot. So to think there's a step-by-step -step tutorial on how to effectively control emotions is like Don Quixote tilting the windmills. But we can say that by pushing ourselves, almost forcing us to experience something we'd automatically wouldn't is certainly to create a different emotion. So if you know that running away will make you feel bad about yourself, force yourself to do differently, even if it means getting punched a couple times. This brings us to the end of this AMA for episode EF28. 
which was looking back at episode EF8. I apologize to any questions I didn't get to. If you'd like to submit questions next time, please go to evolvefaster.com forward slash discuss. And I hope you enjoyed this AMA and look forward to uh, seeing you in the next episode. Take care. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.